Good morning. Please turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 12. Nehemiah chapter 12 is a rich, rich chapter. There's a lot of material here, and I can't do all of it justice. The first portion of Nehemiah chapter 12 is a list of priests and Levites that returned to Jerusalem. The last four verses of Nehemiah chapter 12 are talking about the service at the temple, how that is maintained, and how that is provided for. Those things are worthy of much study, but today I would like for us to direct our attention primarily to verses 27 through 43. 27 through 43. And then later in the sermon, we're going to go and take a look at the gospel according to John chapter 4, so you might want to mark that spot. Have you ever asked yourself this question? What is worship? What is worship? Have you ever really questioned what it means to worship God? Maybe you're like me and you've noticed that there seems to be a lot of styles of worship out there. Sort of a spectrum. There's one end that's not real flashy. There's another end you just about need to wear your sunglasses. Which one is right? Where is it on that spectrum? Which style is the right one? Does it really make a difference? Here's a question that might have crossed your mind. What should I get out of worship? What should I get out of worship? Here's a good question. Should I select the church based on a style of worship? Those are all questions that have probably run through our mind at one time or another. Let's just talk about the concept of worship for a moment before we go any farther. In the Old Testament language and in the New Testament language, in those original languages, I, I'm given to understand that the word worship means almost identically the same thing. First, it indicates that there is an object to be worshipped. There is an object or a being to be worshipped, and it indicates the worth of that being. In this case, our God. It indicates that our God is worthy. Worship indicates that God is worthy. Now, with regard to those of us who are to worship, it impacts us this way. Worship means that we approach Almighty God with extreme reverence, with the esteem and the honor that is truly His, with respect and devotion and fear and awe. We don't rush in to the worship of God. We prepare our hearts to worship God. And we think about the reverence and esteem and honor and respect and devotion that He alone is worthy of. And it should cause us to realize that we are unworthy to enter into His presence. In its literal form, the word means this. It means to bow down. That's not in our nature. That doesn't come naturally to us. We don't bow down to others easily. But to worship means to bow down. It means to literally to prostrate one's self on the ground in the presence of a worthy being. It means literally to kiss the hand of the king in order to declare his worth. Well, worship is no small thing. 
and it cannot be conducted in our natural condition as it ought. Worship is important. Worship is difficult. Worship should be done intentionally, and it should be done with much forethought and preparation. Did you know that the Bible speaks of not less than four types of worship? There are four types of worship that the Bible names. There's vain worship, vain worship. There's ignorant worship. There's will worship. And there's true worship. Which one would you like to be associated with? Vain worship. The Lord Jesus spoke of it in Matthew chapter 15. He was talking there about hypocrites that know the truth but refuse to obey. They go through what looks like worship, but they don't. They're not obedient to the truth that they know. There's ignorant worship. The Apostle Paul spoke of it in Acts chapter 17 at Athens when he went there and he saw an idol to an unknown God. Ignorant worship is worship that is performed by those that do not know God. God deliver us from ignorant worship. But more than that, there's will worship. Will worship. Paul in Colossians 2 talks of that. Will worship is simply this. It is neglecting what God says about worship and performing worship in a manner that pleases our flesh. Will worship is worshiping as we desire, not as God desires. Will worship is worshiping God in a self-chosen methodology in accordance with our own will to the neglect of God. Vain worship, ignorant worship, and will worship. But thank God there is true worship. And the Lord Jesus describes that for us to a very large degree in his interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Now proper worship begins with the understanding that the Lord God is the one being who is worthy of worship and that God alone is the proper object of our worship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one being worthy of worship. Now, it's also important to understand that God alone determines what worship is. That God alone determines what worship is acceptable to Him. We have no input in that. That is God and that is God alone. But praise God, He has not left us in darkness to worship Him as an unknown God. He has spoken, and He has demanded that He be worshipped in accordance with His desires. We have the Word of God. And everything that we need to know about worship is found right here in this book. Praise God. Now as we look at Nehemiah chapter 12 this morning, we will see the people of God worshiping in accordance with the demands of God that applied to them under the Mosaic Covenant. In other words, under the law. Now we must keep in mind as we look at this this morning that they were under the conditional covenant of the Mosaic Law. The worship of God at that time was centered in the city of God in Jerusalem, more specifically at the temple in Jerusalem. You see, the temple was where God had determined, not anyone else, the temple was where God had determined to commune with His people. It was there and it was there alone that God came and He communed among His people at the temple in Jerusalem. 
It was there that the priest mediated the prescribed sacrifices on behalf of God's people, nowhere else. It was there where God passed over the sin of the nation Israel once each year. The focus on the worship of God was at the temple in Jerusalem in that day. And as we look at our text this morning, what we see is, is that the temple which had once been destroyed has been rebuilt. The walls which had once been destroyed have been rebuilt. And what we see is a dedicatory celebration of worship to dedicate once again the city of Jerusalem to the worship of God. And as we look at this, it will dawn on us that we don't have a temple. At least I hope it does. It will dawn on us that we don't have a wall. But there are principles of worship that are contained herein that will be an advantage to us. We will observe principles here that apply to the worship of God in every age. So the purpose of the sermon this morning is first this, to look closely at the worship and the celebration in chapter 12 of Nehemiah, and then secondly, to look at the primary passage in the Bible that describes God's demands for worship from His people under this unconditional covenant of grace that we find ourselves relating to God in. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and thankful for the Scriptures, the oldest Scriptures, and the latest Scriptures that you have given us. Lord, we acknowledge that they are inspired and they are preserved for you and that they are all profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. But Father, we also understand that if we rightly divide the Word of God, that there are some Scriptures that had their direct application to people in other ages. Father, help us divide the Scriptures rightly this morning, and may your Spirit be here to guide us. Father, I pray that you would wipe away the foggy mist of misunderstanding, if any of it exists, and help us understand that you relate to us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are in a covenant of grace, a covenant, a covenant that we did not initiate, that you did, a covenant that we do not maintain, that you do. Father, thank you for your grace. Would you give us guidance this morning as we look at these Scriptures together, for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the good of our souls. Amen. I want you to notice that the worship of God's people in the 12th chapter of Nehemiah, it was intentional. It was very intentional. And it was in accordance with the Word of God. And it was centered on the temple. If you look at verses 27 through 29, we'll notice this. Before we do, let's just let me make this observation that previously we've seen over and over when the people of God got together in Nehemiah's day, they read the Word of God, they heard the Word of God preached, and they prayed to the Word of God. So these things are in addition to those things. In addition to God's Word and prayers and preaching, what they did here in verses 27, 28, and 29 was congregational. It was congregational. When we talk about worship, there is personal worship that each one of us should engage in. There is family worship that we should all participate in in our homes and there is congregational worship primarily we're speaking about congregational worship this morning but these principles have application in private worship and in family worship as well but here their worship was congregational notice they gathered together and they didn't just gather together to see what was going to happen they gathered together under the leadership of men that God had ordained to lead them in this case Ezra and Nehemiah along with the Levites and the priests notice they celebrated 
they celebrated their God with gladness and thanksgiving. Verse 30 tells us that they dealt with their sinfulness prior to worshiping God. The priests and the Levites purified themselves. They purified the people and the gates and the wall. They understood that sin separated them from their God. And they would not rush into the presence of God before dealing with their sin. And in their way, through the purification process that God had given them to do, they cleansed that sin and in accordance with God's instructions, made themselves fit to enter into His presence and worship Him. We read in verses 31 and 32 that they prepared. They prepared to give thanks to God. This wasn't spontaneous. Nehemiah had appointed two choirs, and he appointed a song leader. You see, there was structure to their worship. It was congregational, and it was a celebration. It was, it was characterized by gladness and thanksgiving. They had dealt with their sinfulness through their method of confession in that day, and they prepared to give God thanks. This worship was structured. And notice, in verses 35 and 36, they used cymbals and harps and whatever a lyre is, and they used trumpets. And every musical instrument that they had, they sang with their voices and they played the instruments that they had for the glory of God. They used their voices and they used their breath and they used the skill of their hands. All of the musical talent that God had given them, they used for the glory of God. They engaged as much as they were able to, their whole being in the worship of God. It was no small thing. And they offered great sacrifices in accordance with God's Word. And all of this led to, verse 43, rejoicing with great joy. Rejoicing with great joy. And don't miss this. The Bible tells us that God made them to rejoice with great joy. You do realize, my friend, that one thing that's not changed in the thousands of years in the intervening period is, is that we don't have the ability to produce joy. If you experience joy in your life, it is God that has given you that joy. It is God that has made you to rejoice with great joy. So what we see here is that their worship of Almighty God was very intentional. I'm always reluctant to preach on things I don't think of until I drive into church. But I thought of this this morning. So you're about to experience one of those moments. I thought of this this morning. When we think of the Hebrew people, we think of a people that have, have been under the Mosaic law that God gave Moses up there on the, He gave him the covenant up there on the Mount Sinai. How did the Hebrew people worship God before God gave them the covenant on Mount Sinai? What about the 400 years that they were in Egypt? Now, as far as I can recollect, all they were able to do was sigh and groan. There wasn't a lot of structure that they had in worshiping God down there in Egypt. This is the point that I want to make. Almighty God did not give them this conditional covenant of the Mosaic law until he redeemed them out of bondage. And when he redeemed them out of bondage, when they got out there in the desert, this is what they noticed. Hey, there's something new here. This is brand new. We've never done this before. If there'd have been a bunch of Baptist deacons in the place, it may have never happened. <laughs> Somebody said, we've never done this before. This is brand new. Whatever it is that was back here, we're leaving this behind and we're moving on. That sounds good, doesn't it? 
That sounds good. But what about us when we come over on this side? When we come over on this side of the cross, and there's the old conditional Mosaic law laying back there by which no one was ever saved. There's no flesh that shall be justified by keeping the law. None at all. And we enter into this new covenant. Friends, there is something that is innate within us that causes us to want to go back. It was no different for these Israelites. God was providing everything that they needed out there in the desert. And what did they do? They murmured. And where did they want to go? They wanted to go back to the slavery of Egypt. In my mind, that illustrates the tendency that I have to want to place myself under the law instead of living under grace. We can't go back. We must not go back. We've got it too good. As a matter of fact, God inspired the entire book to the Hebrews in the New Testament to convince them you can't go back. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has drastically changed how God demands to be worshipped by His people. We'll look at that in just a moment in John chapter 4. When I was a young man, a boy really, I used to like to spend a lot of time at my grandmother and granddad's house. My granddaddy, this is my mother's dad, for those of you who knew my mom, my granddaddy was a grand old guy. He was a rough one though. He come up hard, he come up rough, and the Lord didn't save him until much later in life. He had some stories. He had some stories. And he had the gift of storytelling. I wish I'd have got a little more of that from him. He had the gift of storytelling. And he liked to tell the stories from back when he was a young man. He had some exciting times. My cousins were here from West Virginia. And we were sitting at the table and we were drinking coffee. And Granddad had been going on for a while. We'd taken a little break and we'd come back and... And one of my cousins asked him, he said, hey, granddaddy, he said, tell us some more stories about the good old days. My granddaddy kind of looked funny. He took a sip of his coffee and he took a drag on his camel cigarette and he blew that smoke out. And he said, son, he said, I cannot look through the cracks in this floor and see chickens. He said, I don't have to feed that stove over there with wood to cook my food. He said, I can turn that handle to get water. He said, I can flip that switch and get light. And he said, I've got a flush toilet just down the hall. He said, these are the good old days. And by God's grace, I ain't going back. I want us to realize that these, brother and sister, are the good old days. And we cannot go back to the law. Theologically, it doesn't fit us. Not to mention there is no temple and there is no priesthood. And all sorts of other things that aren't back there. We cannot take the law and import it and place it on ourselves. We are under grace. And our worship is not centered on the temple in Jerusalem any longer. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the sole basis of the new covenant. The blood of Christ is the basis of the new covenant. And it has drastically changed how God demands to be worshipped by His people. Our worship is centered on Christ. God no longer communes with people at the temple at Jerusalem. God communes now with His people through the true temple, Jesus Christ our Lord. How is our worship to be different than those that were under the law of Moses? Well, open with me to John, the Gospel according to John, chapter, chapter 4. There, Christ tells us the answer to that question in His interactions with the woman at the well. He interacted with a Samaritan woman at the well. 
And you will recall that she was not the most highly regarded of Samaritan women. First off, the Jews held the Samaritans in extremely low regard, as did the Samaritans hold the Jews in extremely low regard. This story, this historical narrative that we read here in John chapter 4 is rich. It is rich. It is rich in theology. It is rich in irony. It is rich in instruction. It is richer beyond my ability to comprehend. It is worthy of a series of sermons, and we do not have time to address everything that is associated with this this morning. But I do want to point this out. I do want to point this out. Part of the irony is, is that the Lord Jesus Christ had just got finished having this same conversation with the master of Israel, Nicodemus. Nicodemus didn't get it. Nicodemus didn't get it. Now, there's an argument to be made that maybe somewhere down the road Nicodemus did get it, but on that night, Nicodemus didn't get it. The Lord Jesus, in the intervening period, makes his way through Samaria. The Bible tells us that he must needs go through Samaria. The encounter that we're about to discuss here with this woman at the well was ordained by God before the foundation of the world. Almighty God had determined before the foundation of the world two or three things right here. Number one, that there was going to be this interaction between Jesus Christ the Lord and this Samaritan woman who had had a number of husbands and was living with a man that was not her husband now, a woman of low repute, a Samaritan. He acknowledged, uh, he ordained that the Lord Jesus Christ was not going to reveal himself for the very first time as the Messiah of Israel to anybody over there, including Nicodemus, not even an Israelite. When this took place, it was not going to be to a man of much respect. It was going to be to a woman of low repute at a well out in the middle of nowhere in Samaria. That gives me hope. The one thing that that tells me, there are many things, but the thing that's ahead of the list that tells me this is that there is no one too far, no one sunk too low, no one's reputation that has gone so bad, no one that's had so many marriages, done so many drugs, drunk so much alcohol, had such a rough time in life that they're beyond the scope of Almighty God encountering them at the right moment and saving their soul. That's grace. That's grace. The conversation there centered on where true worship was conducted. The important thing that I really want to communicate to you this morning is this. Is that everything about the temple, that's what the woman wanted to know. Christ had told her that he could give her living water. He had confronted her with her sin. And she brought this up. She said, well, you guys say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. We worship over here on Mount Gerizim. We had a temple there once. It's been torn down there, but we go there to the rubble and we worship. What Christ was communicating to her, among other things, was this, is that the temple was the shadow, that Jesus Christ is the reality. Let me take just a moment to talk to you about that before we look at John chapter 4. I want to point out four things that indicate that Jesus Christ is the reality, that He truly is the temple. He truly is where God communes with people. We get the testimony from Hebrews chapter 8 that references back to Exodus 25. It's the passage in Hebrews about where God is telling Moses how to build a tabernacle, the forerunner of the temple out there in the desert. And this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5. He says, They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. He's talking about the, the uh, folks there at the temple. He said, For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle in the desert, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern, the pattern that was shown you 
on the mountain. Now, I understand that the word pattern there does not mean just a plan. It means the reality. Moses was shown the reality by God. Whatever that reality is, Moses saw it. And God said, Moses, you make sure and get every detail of what I'm telling you to get it right. There's a reality in heaven, and that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ is the true temple, and there is no going back. Secondly, think of this. Everything related to the temple, everything that furnished the temple, points to Jesus Christ. Here's a whole series of sermons. There have been volumes of books written on this, and there are numerous ones that I can recommend to you. But everything related to the temple points directly to Jesus Christ. It's either a type or a shadow or a symbol or a prophecy of our Lord. The priests, who is our priest? Jesus Christ is, of course. The sacrifices, who is our sacrifice? Jesus Christ the Lord. The laver where the priests were cleansed. The incense, the lampstand, the bread. I am the light of the world. I am the bread come down from heaven. The altar, the fire, the blood, the veil, all of those things point directly to Christ. The mercy seat, it all points directly to Christ, and those things have their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true temple of God, and there is no going back. The third thing I would have you consider is, is this. In chapter 2 of the Gospel according to John, having been confronted by the religious leaders, asking for a sign to prove that he truly is who he claimed to be, Jesus said this, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. And those fools thought he was talking about the brick and mortar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three tell us that the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking of his very own body. In the shadow of the temple, the Lord Jesus Christ exclaimed and proclaimed to his disciples and all that heard him speak it, and under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, those disciples understood later that he was speaking of his own body as the temple of God. So from the very mouth of Jesus Christ our Lord, we know this, that Christ is the true temple and there is no going back. And then lastly, we read in Mark chapter 15, on the cross, the Lord Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ had made a way for the people of God to enter into the presence of God apart from the temple at Jerusalem. Christ is the true temple. There is no going back. Let's look at John chapter 4 a little closer. And think about true worship. Beginning in verse 20, let me read through verse 24. These are the words of the Samaritan woman. She'd already acknowledged that she perceived that the Lord Jesus was a prophet. There was something unusual about him. He knew her history. She said, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. This is the Word of God. The woman said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. On the face of that question, there's an argument that can be made that she was just simply trying to deflect Christ confronting her with her sin. Just let's simply change the subject. Throughout the years, you've experienced this as well, I suspect, that when you have an opportunity to witness to someone about the Lord Jesus Christ, first let me point out, don't ask those folks if they have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone does. He's either your Savior or He's your judge. So a good way to start that conversation, among others, it's not the only way, is to ask them, what is your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ? How many times have you gotten an answer that sounds a lot like, well, my parents had me baptized as an infant, or my great-grandmother was a Pentecostal preacher, or I've got an uncle that's a Methodist preacher. There's always a deflection. This, this could be a deflection, but it could also be something else. It could also be this. I want you to think with me. Here is a woman that was hated and scorned by all the Jews. She was looked down upon all of the Samaritan women, so much so that she wouldn't even go and draw water from the well at the same time. This woman was an outcast. She'd been ostracized from society. She had been completely put away. She operated by herself up here at this well until this day when she ran into the Lord Jesus Christ. And it could be that her question is this, is there any truth to this whole religious matter? I've worshipped as a Samaritan for my entire life. I've done everything that I'm supposed to do, and look where it wound me up. What have you Jews got over there to help me with? It could be that she really and truly was at the end of her rope. I suspicion that if we stood and gave testimonies, there would be someone here that God let you go all the way to the very end of your own capabilities before He saved your soul by His grace. That may be her condition. We don't know. Either one of those could be the case. But the question is that she placed is this, where is God to be worshipped? She understood that you either worshipped Him if you were a Jew at Jerusalem or if you were, were a Samaritan, you worshipped over here at, at Gerizim. And she said, what's the difference? Ain't neither one of them helping me. Who's right? Who's wrong? Jesus said to her in verse 21, Woman, that was not a term of disrespect. He said, Woman, believe me. Believe me. The hour is coming. Well, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Hmm, new information. New information. That wasn't what she was expecting to hear. Jesus said it's all about to change. It's all about to change. Based on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, there's not going to be a temple at Jerusalem or the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim, it had already been destroyed. It wouldn't be many years after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. He said it's all about to change. But then in verse 22, Jesus settled the matter for her with regard to where worship really does take place in that day. He said, you worship what you don't know. There's that ignorant worship. 
You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. There, the Lord settled the dispute. She asked the question and he answered it. Real worship this afternoon, he's saying, lady, takes place in Jerusalem. But verse 23 says, But the hour is coming. The hour is coming and is now here. Throughout the Gospel according to John, the Lord Jesus Christ referred to the cross event as His hour. He's telling her that they are on the precipice. They're at the very edge of something brand new. That His death, burial, and resurrection is at hand. He said, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Notice, he went on to give the woman a complete answer. The complete answer was this, is that we're on the very precipice of this. It's not going to matter where you worship the Father. It's going to matter how you worship the Father. She didn't understand that. I wouldn't have understood it, and you wouldn't have either. In verse 24, Jesus went on and he said, God is spirit. And those who worship Him must, not should, not might, not oughta. He said, if you're going to worship God, you must worship Him this way. Twofold, in spirit and in truth. There's a lot to be said about worshiping in spirit and in truth. But Jesus said this about it, it's the only worship that's acceptable to God. It's the only worship that's acceptable to God. Our problem with that, my friends, is twofold. If we must worship God in spirit and truth in order for it to be acceptable to Him, our problem is twofold. First fold is this. We, in our natural condition, are spiritually dead. You understand that natural men and women, lost men and women, cannot offer worship that is acceptable to God because they cannot connect to God spiritually because they are spiritually dead, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 5. I recommend that for your reading. That's our first problem. We come into this world spiritually dead. The second problem is this, that according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that the natural man, the lost man, the spiritually dead man, all three ways to describe us before we know the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation, cannot understand the truth of God. It is foolishness to us. So in our natural condition, we are spiritually dead. In our natural condition, we cannot conceive of the truth of God. Natural men, natural women, lost men and women cannot, cannot Worship God in a manner that is acceptable to God. That's where God's grace comes in. That's where God's grace comes in. This is interesting. There are not less than three musts. I love the musts and the shalls that we find in the scriptures. There are not less than three musts that appear in the gospel according to John and Naturally enough, it has to do with the Trinitarian nature of Almighty God. You must be born again, is what the Lord Jesus told Nicodemus, didn't he? 
by the power of God's Spirit. So that, that new birth engages the Spirit, the Spirit of God, and makes our spirit alive. Jesus said that the Son of Man must be lifted up. You must be born again, and the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Almighty God in the person of the Holy Spirit must act upon you and make your spirit alive. He must give you that grace, faith and repentance, and give you regeneration. You must be made spiritually alive by the Spirit, and you must be justified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. You must be born again. The Son of Man must be lifted up, and you must worship God in spirit and in truth. Praise God that Almighty God, in His free and sovereign grace, conceived salvation for His people by the death of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, on the cross. Praise God that He ordained it. Praise God that He initiated it, motivated by an unconditional love for those whom He chose to love. Praise God that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation was actually accomplished for the people of God at the cross 2,000 years ago. Praise God the Holy Spirit that it is He, as the third member of the Godhead, that applies the salvation that Christ accomplished to the people of God that God chose before the very foundation of the world. And praise God that it is He and He alone that causes us to persevere to the very end. As important as our perseverance is, praise God that it is He that preserves us to the very end. There's somebody that's thinking to themselves, Brother Greg, that sounds pretty exclusive. What you're telling me is, what I hear you saying, brother, is, is that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, not only can people not be saved, but they can't even bring acceptable worship to Almighty God. Well, you got it. That's exactly what I'm telling you. But I would not be so bold to do that. Let me give you the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also from the Gospel according to John, in chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said to His disciples, said, Lord, I don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the way to the Father. That's what he's indicating there. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christianity is not exclusive in terms of who we declare the gospel to. The death Burial, resurrection, ascension of our perfect Lord and His second coming is to be declared to all that we can get stand still long enough to listen to us get that out of our mouth in one deep breath. There is no one anywhere that we should ever withhold the gospel from. So there is no exclusivity in who we preach the gospel to. The exclusivity does not apply to us. But there is an exclusivity that the Bible talks about, and that is this, is that there is no approach to Almighty God except through His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that sounds narrow because it is narrow. It's not the only place that the Lord Jesus Christ contrasted the broad way and the narrow way. Let us remain true and faithful to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us worship God 
in truth and in spirit. For we must in order for our worship to be acceptable to Him. Let us acknowledge that the Lord our God, His Son, Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Almighty God, are worthy, and that there is no other being now or at any time or ever shall be in this universe that is worthy of worship. Let us bow in the presence of our God. Let us prostrate ourselves in the presence of our God. Not force our demands upon Him, but to bow in the presence of our God and by the Spirit that is in us, which He has made alive in order to commune with us. Let us lie at His feet and open ourselves to whatever direction it is that He gives us through His Scriptures, through His providence in our lives. Let us commit ourselves to worshiping God with the totality of our being, to be intentional, sober-minded, and thorough as we do it. Brother Greg, can you give me a scripture that I can hang on to and meditate on that would direct me that way? Yes, I can. I've got one that I've been chewing on for a long time. I haven't got it digested yet. It's a mouthful. But it really is what true and spiritual worship is of Almighty God. Paul gives it to us at the end of that wonderful, wonderful section of teaching in the book of Romans, those first 11 chapters that talk about where we were and where we're going in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says this as he begins to make that application. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, in light of all that God has done, in light of all that who God is, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. My brothers and sisters in Christ, don't let anyone put you under the law. Don't put yourself under the law. The temple is gone. Jerusalem is destroyed. There is no going back. We relate to God by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in the new covenant, a covenant of grace, conceived, initiated, ordained, and carried out by Almighty God. It is our reasonable response to that to give ourselves as a living sacrifice to Almighty God in every way that His Scriptures direct us in every opportunity where His providence leads us. That, among other things, that we don't have time to look at this morning, is worshiping God in truth and in spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and we are thankful that you have spoken to us and not left us in the dark. Father, we thank you that we live in an age where you relate to your people in a covenant of grace. Lord, we thank you that you loved us before the foundation of the world, that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, to redeem us and to reconcile us unto you. Father, to, to pay the price that we could not pay,
that we would not pay, even if we could pay, in order for our sins to be forgiven. We thank you, Spirit of God, that you applied salvation to us, and having given us spiritual life, the evidence of faith and repentance followed. Lord, would you take this feeble attempt at a sermon this morning and use it to encourage your people to reevaluate what true worship is, not just on Sunday mornings, but all day, every day. Father, thank you for this time. We ask that you would bless it now to the glory of our Lord Jesus and to the good of our souls. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.